1: What is happening, my friend? This is your host, Brad Wilson, the founder of com, And today's guest on Chasing Poker Greatness is one of the goats and a man I've looked up to for many, many years, Andrew Lucky Chewy Lichtenberger. Andrew has racked up over $10 million in live MTT winnings, as well as being one of the foremost crushers in any form or setting of the poker world. He decides to dive into. Just a few of his MTT career highlights include five WSOP final tables, including a bracelet victory in 2016 for 569K, winning the $100,000 High Roller Alpha 8 in Las Vegas for $1.7 million in 2014, and a second place finish in the 50K WSOP High Roller for 917K. Just last year in 2019, Chewie and I's conversation leads us down the path of his ongoing love for the game of poker, using intangible intuition when you're on the green felt, separating your biases from your intuition, which can be very, very tricky, and what Chewy believes to be true about our lives. Today you'll learn how Chewy goes about integrating his intuition with tactical analysis at the poker table, how to build awareness of your quote-unquote spidey sense so that you can more trust your gut, our opinions on why poker players tend to play much longer sessions when losing despite all conventional wisdom telling us to do otherwise, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I am honored to bring to you not only one of the greatest poker players of all time but also a genuinely amazing amazing human being Andrew Lucky Chewy Lichtenberg Andrew how are you doing sir
0: I'm doing very well I'm enjoying my my quarantine as much as I can <laughs>
1: I can't wait for all these quarantined podcasts to release, like, right in a row. It's just going to be, like, 50 podcasts all recorded in quarantine, released, like, six months in advance. Um, Yeah, hopefully, right? It's a a sign of people doing the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. It's, It's a mess, and I think... Diving deeply into it is not gonna, not beneficial for me. Probably not the audience either. I think at this point because it's so, no, just a, so a pervasive, right? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, yeah. not not that I I couldn't, you know. I I'm more restraining myself because I could obviously <laughs> just talk and talk and talk. Um, and the name of the podcast is Chasing Poker Greatness, and I want to start it out with you specifically, asking you you know greatness is an abstract word what does greatness mean to you
0: um in this context i associate greatness quite a bit with the idea of like excellence or or mastery where you work consistently at a particular skill in order to um i guess evolve your skill set as it pertains to that and yeah continue to improve and, and get to that place where You know, there's. I guess there's always more to learn, new ways to see things. But yeah, just to just to continually improve, really, and I guess have that that mentality of of always wanting to learn and being hungry and being open to new ideas and so on.
1: As related to poker and you, what what do you do on a regular basis to improve to go about that quest for excellence?
0: I mean, I watch a lot of poker. So like any like high roller streams out there, live at the bike type stuff, I, I I still play quite a bit. Um, even if I'm not playing, I'm not watching like a stream. I'll just open tables on a site and just watch. So I'm I'm pretty much always just looking to absorb data and kind of just see how people are approaching situations. And yeah, just just always just always open to see what's what's going on.
1: So it's a regular. Even still, after all this time, a regular immersion to poker, you just open tables and watch what's going on? Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) What are some things that, that you've learned like recently, if you care to share, about just watching people play? Because I think it's a very underrated aspect of poker in that lots of people kind of fold their hand and then check out of reality and life and go on their phone or whatever it is. But just paying attention when you don't have anything invested?
0: Uh, It's hard to pinpoint anything off the top of my head that I've learned recently from just watching. I guess I did see a hand the other day uh, with a guy I play with, a couple hands actually, just like especially aggressive lines he took where you can tell from playing with someone like that that they're, they're capable of such things, but I guess just seeing it firsthand and, um, having any sort of doubt removed that they're willing to, to pull certain bluffs like that is helpful.
1: And you're one of the people that I, that I most respect when it comes to the, when it comes to the intuitive or like the quote unquote feel nature of the game, which to me is an aspect of poker that's always been very near and dear to my heart specifically. And it, gets a, a negative connotation, I think, or people use it as, like, a negative, which is, like, kind of silly to me. But I interviewed Katie Stone uh, a few weeks back. She came on the pod, and she gave a hand history where, you know, she raised under the gun with kings, flat, flat, flop was jack, eight, deuce, check. She gets led into, she raised, the small blind, pretty quickly rips, right? And I asked her in the hand, like, how did you feel, right? Like, like we break it down technically. And then I, I asked her, like, snap judgment, how, do you, how did you feel when they ripped? And she said, I felt horrible. Like, I felt totally horrible. And then she, she went on to say that she doesn't always trust this feeling. And what was interesting about this afterwards were, was we were talking on Twitter, and she sent me a picture because it was at a final table. So somebody took a picture of her in the moment, when the dude ripped and you can see the angst, like her whole, you can just, you can almost feel the angst in her body. Um, She ended up calling the guy had a set of eights and she busted out. But like, why do you think poker players specifically, even though they feel this angst, um, this intuitive feeling that in a spot like this, they don't trust it. And instead do what they think is the, I guess the technically or the, technically the correct play or the safe play.
0: Well, I mean, the obvious answer I guess is that um the feeling is a little bit less quantifiable at least as we currently approach it and the the theoretical basis will never really lead you astray in the long term. So, while there's room for for manipulating the I guess the default play based on those more intangible variables, it is you do run the risk of of making errors uh, based on that, and that's something I've always struggled with as well. I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't even prefer to use the term struggle, but it's something I've been challenged by. Where sometimes I'm sure I've made like very uh, very poor decisions as a result of sort of acquainting myself with these more intangible aspects of the game. Uh, nevertheless, I also believe that it's a part of it, and. I guess I just seek to, to sort of find the right way to integrate it while not letting it run away with the show. Because I think they, they both sort of they balance each other.
1: How do you go about doing that?
0: Well, when I'm playing, I'm always thinking for, first and foremost about the, the theory. And then I only let sort of the more intangible um, field-based stuff come into play as, as it becomes relevant. So I'm not, I'm not going there first. But sometimes it'll occur to me that like, oh, like something's off about this spot, like I should check behind here where it's like a default bet, or I should make like this low frequency check raise, or you know, I should stack this hand off or I shouldn't, so on, yeah, I kind of just like I let it come to me, uh, I think that's at least from my experience the healthiest way to do it. I think if you're always trying to to check in with it, it's like um. Your your gas tank's gonna run dry pretty quick because it's like, it's like, hey, you have seven three off in middle position, like, try to just let this one go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I, I think in her spot specifically, it's like, you know, it's final table spot where giant swing in in one direction or so. It's like a very pivotal hand where the, the fortune of the tournament hinges, sort of, on this this decision. Sure. I, I think. Uh, I guess I'll start by like. So I've been hanging around Nick Howard this last week and they're all about mass database analysis mm-hmm. and quantifying, trying to trying to the best of their ability to quantify everything. Mm-hmm. And, and also in poker, like there is this intuitive nature, right? There There is an intuition that we use. And, and it's just, where do you think this intuition comes from in the first place? I guess we can start there.
0: I mean, my personal belief, not probably a widely held belief, I guess it depends who you ask, is that it comes from somewhere outside of us called the collective consciousness for lack of a better term, where, you know, we're I think our minds are sort of connected to this this larger this larger mind and call it the hive mind, I guess. And uh, we're able to receive data from that hive mind and we don't really know exactly like how we get it, why we get it, when we get it. But there's, there's some sort of impulse there that I think becomes evident at, at various times, uh, it, at least for those that, that choose to look into it and, and maybe start to uncover a little bit uh, of what surrounds that topic.
1: Why do you believe that?
0: I guess it's just experiential experiences I've had, you know, both playing poker and, you know, even experiences not
1: playing poker. Can you describe one? Yeah.
0: Um, Well, I mean, I guess I could describe any sort of poker scenario where I felt I had an intuitive impulse. But I guess it's probably more helpful to describe the way in which it happens. Like often there's a um, a physiological component associated with it. Um, But it can be tricky to figure out what exactly is going on. So like say like in Katie's example, you said she she looked like she was feeling a lot of angst and she, she felt terrible. I've had that happen where I'm like, okay, I've concluded that this is outside the, the normal range of emotional experiences that accompany me playing a poker hand. Nevertheless, I now have to determine whether or not this means that proceeding in the, uh, the way in which I ordinarily would is a good idea or a bad idea. Because sometimes you might just have whatever bias towards uh, proceeding in a, a sort of natural way insofar as theory would dictate if maybe the last couple times you were in that spot, you lost and you have some sort of uh, desire to to deviate from that. And I think that's where... Um, a lot of what, uh, what the Howards sort of recommend uh, is, is very helpful where it's just like, hey,
1: you know, you, might, you might just be wrong. <laughs> right. It, 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 it might not be an intuitive signal from your gut as you say in, in your blog. It could just be an emotional response, an emotional bias based on a previous similar spot that caused you some sort of pain or suffering where you're just avoiding it you're, you're making up a reason to avoid it emotionally. Yeah,
0: I definitely think that happens. I think that happens to everyone to some degree. Um, maybe the best of the best are able to just completely block that out of their their minds, and that's what makes them that. But yeah, I for sure think that everybody deals with that in, in some capacity.
1: Sure, and I think you you can even feel it sometimes. Like I can feel it as I go through my sessions and I'm making decisions and like – I think humans are tricked by randomness a lot. We're, we're horrible. Humans are just bad at being random in general. And it manifests in poker where like, say you've raised five hands in a row, right? Like you, you just, you're raising, raising, raising. Then the sixth hand, you get a profitable spot where you should raise, or maybe it's like marginally profitable and I pass it up because I've raised like five times in a row, I think this is like a bias manifesting in my play where it's like, I just don't feel like I should raise it now. Like, but it's just based on pure feeling, right? There's no, you know, there's no theoretical reason behind it. But like, I guess what I'm really trying to aim at is like differentiating these feelings, like navigating the awareness of a bias versus something that, Is actually real, like an actual intuitive response based on, you know, the subconscious mind. Like, how how do you how do you even navigate these waters? How how does someone gain the awareness to even go about navigating it? Because, like, like with Nick Howard and their crew, it's almost as if just ignore the intuition, right? Like, yeah, I hate I hate putting it in those terms, but really, and and I
0: think like for some people, at least towards the beginning of one's career that's not necessarily the worst idea because i I do think that like you have to learn the theory if you want to be a successful poker player so if you're trying to balance those two things up front it it might just not work Uh, nevertheless i think like you kind of hit the nail on the head like you have to have the awareness of it uh, first and foremost and once you have the awareness of Something that pertains to this idea, whatever that means to you, you can start to sort of sift through the, the feelings that you get while whilst you're playing, and see what those sort of mean to you and how they relate to to what's going on, and and look to form any sort of uh, link based on patterns that emerge.
1: How do you go about building this awareness in the first place?
0: I mean, I guess like meditation type practices are helpful because you can get in touch with how you're feeling and, and what you're feeling. But I don't, I don't know. I guess it's, it's probably different for everyone. So it's, it's hard for me to say anything too assertively or definitively, but I don't know. Like when I'm playing, I'm, I'm pretty aware of how I'm feeling. I, I think it also helps a lot with like tilt control type things. It's like sometimes, you know, if you're just getting smashed, you can just acknowledge like, okay, I'm pre- probably playing like my B game right now because I'm just not in the right state of mind. Um, Whereas if you're the one doing the smashing, you're like, Oh, okay. I'm playing like my A plus game. Like there's, there's sort of, you know, nothing holding me back right now. I'm not overthinking things. I'm just letting it flow. Um, I think it's in some ways an extension of that. It's just like acknowledging how, how you're, how you're feeling, how your emotional state is fluctuating what sort of impulses you're getting, et cetera.
1: Right, so gaining awareness of awareness <laughs> is the first step. <laughs> gaining awareness that there is aware- awareness that is needed in these high high emotional spots, and you know, just even thinking about how you feel in any given moment and and sifting through that, I think is very important for folks playing poker versus like just flying by the seat of your pants. Almost, yeah. you know, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned flow state, like you mentioned your A plus game playing in a state of flow, and I know that this is something that's near and dear to your heart. How how do you go about entering flow state more often in poker?
0: I think it's one of those things where you can't so much try to do it. There's no like trying. It's either you're doing it or you're not. Um, And I think a lot of that just comes from just sort of letting go. Like, it sounds a little bit cliche, but I think that's usually what works for me. Yeah, and it can be different Letting on of different what? days. Sometimes it feels like, okay, I have to be, like, making decisions a little bit more quickly. And sometimes I feel like, oh, okay, I should probably slow down a little bit. I, I think it, it speaks a bit to, like, I guess honoring the way that you feel. I guess to sort of link the two things. Like, I know um, there's a, a chess master. Um, Igor Petrosian was his name. And he was very revered for like, you know, just being a phenomenal uh, tactician and uh, defender and so on. And he had said that on the morning of big events, he would just like kind of meditate in his room before the game and try to figure out if he was going to play like a more aggressive opening or a more sort of like, compact system where he would just sort of wait for his opponent. And I've never really heard any other chess masters speak in similar terms, but I thought that was pretty cool. And and I guess in poker, you know, there's there's ways to sort of um take from that uh in in a practical, sort of strategic sense. But I think more generally just the idea of just kind of figuring out where you're at uh, on any given day is kind of helpful. And I think that that, I guess, introspection lends itself towards the ability to to find a flow state more easily.
1: Is that from the Art of Learning by Josh Waitson? Yes. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure I read. Yeah, the- that's yeah, why I read okay. it. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that specifically because I thought I uh, I related to that. Like I think that in poker, some days you're more aggro some days you you have more energy some days you have less energy and uh sort of just accepting that and leaning into it i've found i found effectively over my poker career that leaning into any emotion that i have is always better than fighting against it as long as um, it's not a negative one, one <laughs> well right as long as it's not just like pure monkey toe, sure. right <laughs> but here's something that i've been thinking about a lot and my listeners are going to get sick of it because i'm going to talk about it with multiple guests in a row. But I wanted to talk about it with you specifically, because I thought you might have some good insight. And I could be totally wrong about my theory. And I think I think that for some people, it could be very a dangerous thought. However, I've noticed in my poker career, that I've always been a high intensity player. So high intensity, I can go for two or three hours max. And then I need to rejuvenate mm. in some way, like I need to get away and come back and like, I just know this about myself as a human being. However, if I lose, if I lose like three or four buy-ins, like relatively in quick succession, I found over and over and over again that I'm able to play longer. I have more focus. I have more energy. And this goes against pretty much everything that I've ever read in any poker book as far as lengthening a session when you're losing. I've just found that for me personally, I do have extra energy. I do have extra focus. And it feels beneficial to lean into that versus fighting against it and feeling bad for playing longer um, when I get these extra bursts of energy. But I would love to know your thoughts on this specifically. It's just it's a pattern that I've seen poker players fall mm-hmm. into. Since the beginning of time, they play longer when they're losing over and over and over again, despite all logic, despite all like, uh, you know, logical thought and, and conventional wisdom.
0: Yeah, it's, fu- it's really funny that you mentioned this, actually, because I was just chatting with a friend last night and um, he's like, how you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm on a bit of a downswing and like, how you doing? He's like, oh, I'm kind of crushing lately. And we were talking about how we felt about everything going on in the world. And um, he has a bit of anxiety and I don't really. And I was thinking like, okay, you know, this is just like two random data points. But then I was thinking like, you know, while I'm in the middle of a session, I actually can relate um, to what you're talking about to some degree. And I was trying to figure out like, you know, why, why does this exist? Like when things are going well, why do we want to like pull back and sort of rest on our laurels? And when things aren't, why do we want to push on and tr- and trudge forward? And I guess like some of it is perseverance and, you know, just like probably some people exist who are like a lot um, more risk averse than you or I, where when they're winning, they want to keep playing. And, you know, I'm sure we've both had our moments where, you know, we don't have this, but, you know, it does resonate with me. And the, th- the thing I concluded um, just in a very brief sort of um, moment of pontification is that we're so used to things just flipping like you know we know in in poker from having logged enough hours that nothing lasts forever so if you're winning eventually you're going to start losing if you're losing eventually you're going to start winning and obviously we're all in it to win so when we're winning we know eventually the loss is coming when we're losing we know eventually the win <laughs> is coming so that's all i got as far as that goes but um it, it does seem possible that we just know eventually like the tides are going to turn
1: <laughs> we're doing our best to to deal with that reality prevent the inevitable shoe dropping (laughs) that where we get crushed and then just keep playing our way out until you know the other foot drops and we start winning i think that does make a lot of sense um just logically and emotionally uh i thought about it too that like in a a moment of high stress i think that humans can gain some clarity Mm. where you know you're you feel like you're aware. You're walking down the street, and then somebody pushes you down. You have some sort of physical altercation. Like you're going to be more focused in that moment. You're going to have more energy. So when there's pushback against you, I think human nature might be to push back, and you gain gain energy based on it. maybe it's just a natural human response. I'm not sure, but I know that in saying this, I'm not advocating anybody to just play for 48 hours straight when they're losing and on yeah, tilt. Mm-hmm. But um, for for the seasoned veterans out there that feel bad when they play longer and they're losing, I think it's not something you should feel bad for. I think you should lean into it and kind of be grateful for the extra energy.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that is is true. It's really just how you approach those uh, those losing sessions while you're in the midst of it. And yeah, I mean, if you're tilting, like, of course it's not going to work, but if you're, if you're playing well, you're not letting the the losses affect your decision-making, then yeah, I mean, by all
1: means. Right. Again, it's having awareness as to whether you're tilting or whether you're using the energy in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a quote from, from your blog that I want to read back to you and ask, ask Mm -hmm. your thoughts. You said, although I can only speak for myself, I feel that something which is somewhat pervasive amongst humans is that we like some degree of routine, but don't like when consistency turns to monotony. Mm-hmm. I've worked to combat this by employing routine in a way that's healthy, but allowing myself the freedom to sway from a rigid approach if it feels right. And to me, this, as a poker player, this, is, this obviously resonates very well, and I'm sure it resonates with tons of poker players where you know consistency turns to monotony how do you go about this like what has worked for you in changing, uh, altering your routine um well i probably i mean i i probably
0: lean more on the side of like not having much of a routine i have like general things like you know when when life is quote-unquote normal like you know I'll i'll get up in the morning i'll you know, catch some sun, um, do some meditation, go to the gym, get some food, and then, you know, probably start playing on most days. But yeah, I guess uh, the reason I wrote that is because I know that my, I know that uh, the unstructured nature of a professional poker player's life can lead to chaos. So like trying to employ sort of, some pillars to live by is is helpful but nevertheless i also know that when i try to adhere to that routine too too rigidly it just like loses its um anything that made it valuable just like sort of lessens over time it seems like after a certain amount of days of doing the same thing i just want to do something different i've noticed this especially as it pertains to like my sleep schedule. If I'm going to sleep at like a consistent time for two or three weeks, it seems like almost inevitably there'll be one day when for whatever reason, I'm just not tired and I just like stay up all night and just completely ruin it. And <laughs> I used to like kind of, you know, get down on myself because it's like, well, I was, you know, quote unquote doing so well and now I've destroyed all my hard work. but. I think it's it's just a nat, natural impulse that I don't really fight anymore. I'm just like, okay, that's just the way that I deal with these things, and I, I I would rather like you know mess it all up, so to speak, and and start from scratch than continue on with it, and maybe that will change, and maybe it won't and maybe it's like a learned behavior and maybe it's uh just part of who I am. I don't really know. <laughs>
1: It's so funny that you say that because I just a few hours ago got finished speaking with Anton Wig and he told me a story uh where somebody y- y'all were playing poker together somebody asked the question of like what is what's your biggest regret over the last 3 months and like people were giving their reasons and he said Chewy sat there for about 3 minutes and said I know what I got mine <laughs> I, I have mine I, I stayed up really late. <laughs> <laughs> I, stay, I stayed up really late and slept till 3 p.m. a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I remember that. There's it's not too long ago that we had that, that interaction at the table. I mean, it feels really stupid when you do it because then like, okay, you wake up and like, you know, obviously you're not going to sleep at the time you were a couple days ago on, on that day because you woke up at three and you missed a lot of the sun and it is
1: what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is yeah it's just I think again, you know instead of I think human humans just in general at least in my life experience whenever instead of leaning into the negative connotation with these things, the negative feeling of breaking a habit, the negative just all the the negative feedback that you can give yourself, just sort of accepting it as okay, biologically, I wasn't sleepy, I stayed awake yeah. all night, and it just happened, and now you know maybe this is just my normal, right I'd like trying to quantify everything, like something that I I see people do all the time is like, you know, you need six hours of sleep. Like if you're sleeping more than six hours, like you're lazy, you're a lazy person. Right. And I know me, I need nine hours period. Like that's my optimal amount of Mm -hmm. sleep. And if people take to heart this feedback, this heuristic of like, oh, if I sleep more than six hours, I'm lazy. And yet they feel miserable and are operating as at a lower level. This is just bad, yeah, right? Sure. Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting thinking
0: about it and hearing the reflection in this conversation. Cause, uh, I do, you know, try to hold myself accountable for the behaviors that I have and, and the lifestyle I live. Um, but nevertheless, like you, you really never do know quite what, is is to come and you know maybe maybe that happens and then you catch a really good game and you're you know prepared to be up late the next day like there are unforeseen benefits that come with this and i think you know living a lifestyle that doesn't really have scheduling built into it um outside of podcasting it, uh, <laughs> you have to kind of be open to to whatever comes your way and and just yeah allow it to, to be what it is.
1: Isn't it interesting that we can go back in our lives on some of the moments where we suffered the most, look back on them as something that we needed in that moment that is beneficial to us in the future, and yet s- still suffer in the moment, <laughs> like when Definitely. life throws us a curveball, right?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, that things can work that way, but I guess it's it's great that they can because... I don't know, it's like transmutation almost.
1: Tell me what you mean. Go f- dive further into uh, that. Just
0: that you reframe the way that something uh, feels or how you relate to it as time goes on. And I think like especially this is true with, uh, like I've noticed this where they, you know, say you're at the height of an upswing and then, okay, you start losing a bit. And it feels so unusual because you've, you know it's it's um contrasted to what you've been experiencing. say you lose a couple buy-ins the next day you lose a few more, and the next day you lose a few more and it's like you start to almost become numb to the losing because now that's like kind of your your new normal in some sense, and something that was previously like so um so jarring because of the contrast. Is now exacerbated in terms of you know the the practical effect that it it has on you know your bankroll and just like the the amount of losing is is more so, but it actually feels less so. I just think that's that's a really interesting way that experiences sort of work in in tandem with emotions yeah. and the timeline they exist on.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because I. I have to. I have to always notice when my brain is lying to me, or like have to be introspective when I'm. I have these thoughts, but when I'm a, on an upswing, there's common thoughts that come to me. And number one, when I when I talk to guys, I, I talk to guys and they're on an upswing, and I he, I hear the feedback from what they're saying, and it makes me recognize when I'm believing a story mm. in my own mind. And one of the stories that I always hear and that I'm always telling myself on an upswing is. I'm not even getting that lucky. <laughs> like, I'm not even running. I'm not even running that good, right? Like, um, I can't even really imagine losing. Uh, <laughs> losing in the next month, like. But it's weird how the brain just tricks us over and over and over. Yeah, and again. I think that's the
0: reason that like intuition gets a bad rap is because most people aren't being realistic enough with themselves. You know, save for the people that just don't believe in the idea of it. Um, but most people just aren't being honest enough to like parse through the data because a lot of it is uh you know it's fairly subtle. It's not like a very overt thing.
1: It is. And tell me do do you have any stories about when you just you went with your intuition completely against poker theory and well, whatever the results were? Um, yes, definitely many of
0: of those. I had one one that comes to mind in particular, and like you know to uh not to discount what I just said because like the results were in my favor here, and you never know how things pan out, but it probably does like reinforce this sort of um, i guess ability to follow through on stuff like this, but it wasn't even like a very uh, major spot, and uh there's probably like you know some theoretical argument to to Approach a situation like this, but it was uh, a super high roller or high roller. Someone had opened under the gun. Probably were seven or eight handed, and I was in low jack seat, probably maybe high jack. I can't exactly recall. And opener had like sixteen or seventeen blinds, and I had queen jack suited. It's like you know, kind of a default hand to flat with. But something about the moment, and there was like a, a waitress near who was like talking and like kind of the whole situation was just too overwhelming, and I just felt like, for whatever reason, like this was not the hand to play. And it's, it's just not theoretically justified. like there's no reason that that, and like I've dealt with people, you know talking, and you know poker rooms can be loud and There just wasn't. There was no. There was no concrete evidence to justify folding this hand pre-flop, but nevertheless, I, I did, and who knows what would have happened? Just impossible to really say. But that's just what comes to mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, not even a conclusion to the hand. Did uh, nobody? Did never got a? uh, Did it even go to a flop?
0: Um. I don't think so. I think everyone just
1: folded to the open. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't, can't even get any quantifiable feedback as to what was going on. Yo, coach Brad here. And I have a very simple question. How would you like an opportunity to join Nick Howard's crew at poker detox? This is a chance for you to have world-class coaching and hop on the fast track to destroying online cash and MTTs without risking your own money or enduring years of pain trying to figure things out on your own. I recently had the good fortune to go behind the scenes with Nick and his detox crew to experience for myself their training methods, and quite frankly, I was blown away and have never seen anything like it. The Poker Detox system is both powerful enough to supercharge your game and simple enough to implement hand after hand. In the last year, they have verifiably fast-tracked multiple players from 50 no limit all the way up through 1k no limit, and on average, their players are winning eight big blinds per hundred on non-app sites across all stakes, with the majority of volume being played at 200 through 500 no limit. However, this opportunity is not for wannabes or lazy bums. This is for folks who are obsessed and want to do the work so that they can reach their full potential as poker players. To qualify, you must be able to provide a break-even or winning graph in cash games or MTTs over the last three to six months and be willing to play full-time. To take the next step, all you have to do is send me that graph via email, brad at com, or send a direct message to at Enhance Your Edge on Twitter and I'll personally guide you through the next step in the process. Once again, that email is brad at com, and the Twitter handle is at Enhance Your Edge. Thank you for your time. I'd love to hear from you soon. And now, back to the show. I want to talk to you about energy because I know that you're a big proponent of energy, right? And I think that again, going back to your blog, something you wrote about, you know, the electromagnetic brain, Auras um, sensing things from our fellow human beings in a live setting mm-hmm. is something that I've always trusted as as a poker player because and, and again, like there could be bias, there could be distortion. It feels right. In the moment it feels right, even though Maybe it's not quantifiable. What are your thoughts just in general on energy at the poker table?
0: I mean, I definitely th- think, yeah, like you can you can sort of get a sense for how other people feel, particularly as, as hands develop and on future streets, like uh, people who aren't composed tend to show it more as the pot grows in size and the decisions have more relevance. So I think there's just like sort of the the nature of your you know you're sitting in close proximity to somebody, and you know their their behavior may give it away. Call it a tell, or you know just general behavior that that shows through uh, in the way that people are acting. But I do think there there are definitely more subtle things going on, where particularly as it pertains to like significant others, like you can get a pretty good sense of how someone that you're very close to is feeling without them voicing any sort of concern or elation or any sort of emotion along the spectrum and and i think like you know that uh that same ability is not lost at the poker table it's just experienced in a slightly different way and i think a lot of it has to do with like sort of just matching someone's uh, call called a frequency or like their their level of consciousness and just sort of being on on the same wavelength as them. I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for just sort of determining where they're at, either in their mind, what they're thinking, um, or just like where they're at in their range, like trying to deduce, you know, based on their actions, if they're towards the top or towards the bottom. Um, I guess saying to- based on their actions is sort of disingenuous in this sense, but yeah, just sort of how they're approaching the situation.
1: I would say... It'd be, I think, selling you short to, to think that you don't afterwards – after having awareness of these spots where your gut, your intuition tells you to go one way, one direction or the other, I assume you do, after the fact, reflect and try to break down or quantify maybe what was going on, um, especially if you get some data, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an active practice. Yeah, I think it's
0: pretty important to to always be open to like, hey, maybe maybe you made the wrong decision. I think without that, none of us probably would ever have gotten better at poker in the first place. Like you have to always be open to honest self-examination and yeah, just to, the possibility that you, you made the wrong choice and have been making the wrong choice. And we'll continue to unless you self-correct.
1: Yes, this is definitely a commonality. That One of the commonalities I found among poker players is this almost obsessive introspection, question asking, picking apart every single thought, every single decision as to why did I do this? Is this right? Is this correct? And it, it's a trap that I find less experienced poker players falling into they believe they do something with 100% certainty when there's just no chance that that degree of certainty is obtainable. And by not questioning, by not having introspection, they know, they fail to grow and improve over time. Yes,
0: definitely. And I think it's interesting how this sort of same idea manifests itself in the real world, where a lot of times people will assert such certainty about various uh, real-world events or, or circumstances, and I'm always just like, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but um, sometimes it it makes me think like, am I just not seeing something? But then, more than likely, it's just no. Like, I'm just used to the nature of probabilities and uncertainty towards you know realistic outcomes, and a lot of people aren't. They just like latch on to whatever, you know, sort of acquiesces their, uh, their biases or, or their emotions probably more often than not. Um,
1: yeah. To generally a story that they, they, they choose to believe. What is true? What do you believe is true? Uh, we exist. I can say that with certainty.
0: And there's more to life than, than what we see. Um, and everything's a miracle.
1: Oh, wow. Expand on the last one a little, because that one's, that's a big one. I guess, like, I think
0: either everything's a miracle or nothing is. Like, I don't think, I, I think it is binary in that sense. I don't think there's any, there's any in between there. And I just prefer to see that everything's a miracle, even if it doesn't really make sense uh, while it's happening.
1: So would you say that the universe is benevolent?
0: Yes. Definitely. I think a lot of people would probably argue against that. Um but I think yeah there's some sort of underlying like universal hive mind and it has intelligence and, and benevolence for sure.
1: Yeah, I think about this a lot as far as like is the universe neutral? Is the universe benevolent and benevolence always strikes me as more true. I never know if I can trust my human brain and my own biases, but just the fact that life exists, uh, the fact that we're here feels benevolent versus the alternative of no life, no existence, no nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it, it makes sense that it would it would feel better to be here than not. We are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah,
0: it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I think even if it was... Neutral and indifferent, I would say that's still more benevolent than it is malicious if you were to sort of graph it or whatever or compare it the two.
1: Yes. Um, definitely don't think it's malevolent. I don't know. <laughs> um, Some people do that. These are questions. Oh, yeah? You think so? They think that the world is just against the universe is against them? I mean, I guess it makes sense. I,
0: I hope that that number of individuals shrinks over time. Um, but I guess they're, they're free to choose to believe whatever, um, appeases them. But yeah, I definitely think there are some people like that. Yeah. Even in Buddhism, like one of the core tenets is like life is suffering. And I like a lot of Buddhist ideas, but I don't really get that one.
1: Yeah. So through the ego, the, the ego is the cause of all suffering, right? Is that this is Eckhart Tolle, although it may, that may originally be more spiritual Buddhist beliefs. What do you think of that? Like as far as the ego, how we perceive the world, the stories we tell ourselves.
0: I think that makes sense. Like it's, it just sort of speaks to the importance of not, um, deluding yourself into believing things that will negatively impact you.
1: It's really hard letting go of identity. It's really hard letting go of the things that we genuinely believe to be true as human beings. Um, without any sort of outside catalyst. And yeah, it's just the the ego to me feels like an evolutionary tool that makes sense of everything and is the basis of our identity. Um, yeah,
0: I don't think the ego is inherently negative. I think it's more just like a, a filter system, but I think it, it can be and probably often has been, and that's why it's gotten a bad rap.
1: Yeah, I mean... If it's evolutionary, it's built, you know, it's, it's something that is designed for human beings to be more successful and to navigate the world and to work together as a community and as a tribe. Um, but obviously, when you exist solely through the ego, problems are going to just naturally develop. And I think that, like, whenever there's conflict amongst opinions just with people in general like like you said you know i can i find myself falling into the trap of being right i'm on the right side mm. of this i am right and then when i think about it a little further and analyze the ego i think well this person is coming up from it f- through a different filter um from a different place and the story that they're telling themselves like who am i to say somebody's story is wrong and my story is right like that seems uh arrogant in a in a way to me yeah
0: yeah, I mean, it is, and I can also relate to having been on your side of of things in the past.
1: Anyway, I'm I'm taking taking as far away from from poker, uh, <laughs> but let's jump back in. What's the most unexpected thing that that's come from your poker journey?
0: I mean, to be honest, it's all kind of unexpected to some degree. Like, I mean, when I first got into it, I just really liked playing. I didn't know how many great people I would meet. I, I didn't know I would do it professionally, that I would travel the world, that I would achieve success in a variety of different ways. I feel like the unexpected nature of it is kind of still evolving, but it's all really, yeah. if I were to, to speak from where I was when I started.
1: Yeah. it's Maybe it's just the journey through life. Yeah, it <laughs> it's Everything is unexpected. Yeah. Um, when you think about joy... In your career playing cards, mm-hmm. what's the first memory that comes to mind?
0: Probably when I was new to playing online tournaments. I'd achieved some level of success in cash games. And uh I just saw how many friends of mine were doing well in tournaments and was just kind of drawn into them. And I lost for uh a few months and like a decent portion of my bankroll at the time. And then I just went on a massive upswing, won a C to PCA, got like third and F tops, continued having like various other scores. And that sort of stretch uh, was very joyous because outside of just the direct financial gain, it was also representative of the idea of like, okay, if you're not doing well now, but you're, Playing well, you're just setting yourself up for when the tide does turn, and you will eventually have the success. Like your the seeds that you're sowing with your good decision making will eventually uh, bloom, uh, and that that will be very joyous.
1: That's a that's a great lesson, and sort of the opposite of uh, Jeff Matson, who I had on the show, who like his first WSOP went from a sub, you know, a high four figure bankroll to the seven figures in less than a month Mm -hmm. because of just tons of success, um, in 2006. But then obviously you have to learn the inverse lesson. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not just going to win every single tournament that I play. Right. Um, you need that balance as poker players. Um, and that's, you know, that's a greatness bomb and a great lesson for the folks listening that, along your journey, do the best you can, make great decisions, there's seeds that will eventually manifest um, if you just keep at Mm -hmm. it.
0: Yeah, and I think about that a lot, like, when I'm playing and losing, and, like, particularly losing all-ins. Like, well, I I have to contribute to my part of the statistical aspect of this game. Like, I, I always, I struggle sometimes and I shouldn't say struggle. I'm challenged sometimes by like knowing why I'm doing something. If if at the end, like I know, you know, I could track all my my results and be like, okay, you know, I win X dollars per hour or per hand or, or whatever. But like, even something as silly as like generating points in an online site will sometimes like make me feel as if like, okay, there's a reason I'm like sitting here playing um outside of the money and like uh you know sit, uh, to that point like knowing that okay like you know even though i lost these all ends like I, I have to do that in order to win like it's just part of it it's it's uh the other side of the same coin It just helps like with getting through tough times i guess
1: <laughs> what do you make of that struggle like it just especially after you've been doing it for so long right like how? What do you make of just of the experience itself? I think it just
0: just tests you to to continue to persevere, and like develop more mental fortitude, and just be more prepared for um, the inevitable variance that lies ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, you have a great lens on in which to view the game that I think is, you know like i mentioned earlier about when you're stuck buy-ins and you have energy and you know you can go on tilt like just looking at things through a different lens can offer a new perspective that sort of unlocks current and future gains and keeps you in the in the race because uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed with emotion it's easy to get overwhelmed and feel like the world is going to end as a poker player this happens to us regularly more regularly than probably most human beings i would think yeah (laughs) so the the opposite when you think about pain in your career what's the first memory that comes to mind um
0: yeah so definitely um playing high stakes heads up uh against mostly one opponent but there were other people in the player pool that were also looking to play this guy and uh, my friend and i were splitting action and uh, I I've told this, or at least briefly uh, alluded to this anecdote on one of uh, Joey Ingram's podcasts. But I probably had mid to high six-figure bankroll at the time, and uh, we lost. Or I was playing. I lost three hundred K in one night, and. It was so, it was so like shocking, because, I mean, just being blunt, like I was a lot better than the people I was playing, and it's just like, wow, like things can just go awry. <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately, the very next day, playing against the same players, I was able to win it all back and then some, which is crazy that I was <laughs> even back in the games, but. I guess to, to my earlier point about perseverance, like it's, uh, it's definitely helpful outside of you know just being a a beneficial quality to have like it, it, it at times will you know lead to the ability to to capitalize on the good opportunities that uh, you have in terms of games that you can find and people you can play. Uh,
1: what stakes was this? Uh, 200, 400. So three hundred K is like uh what is that, eight buy-ins? Something like that? Uh a little bit less, yeah, seven and a half. Seven and a half buy-ins. What did your friend what did your friend think? What did your friend say? Like was he was I guess he wasn't like in the room with you, but was he sweating it, sweating it online and Yeah, so it's funny, he's
0: um he's got a really unique way of approaching situations like this and you know to his credit like it's one of the reasons that he's very successful and has found success in other areas of life outside of poker um but he was always very encouraging like anytime any sort of big loss happened and just kind of acknowledged that it was part of it and did a much 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 better job and continues to do a better job of dealing with swings than than I do
1: well, that's the that's the right person you want to be hooked up with. I think in a moment like that,
0: yeah, for um, sure.
1: <laughs> you don't want to be hooked up with somebody emotionally unhinged who sleeps through the night and wakes up, and you're like, oh, I uh, we we lost three hundred yesterday. Um, good morning. Yeah. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be, and why?
0: Why possibly the Art of Learning? That's a really great book. Um. It did a good job of highlighting a lot of ideas that I've had, but had never put into words. Yeah, he's a really fascinating human.
1: It's a great suggestion. I'm pretty sure Elliot Rowe suggested it as well. Mm. I've, I think I've read, it, I've read it two or three times, but it's been a while. I, I need to read it again. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker what would it be? It's just to have people be nicer to each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I know a lot of times when people act out, they're just upset because they're losing or what have you. Yeah, sometimes people are just selfish
1: or whatever, but... Don't be dicks. Um, <laughs> be nice, and nicer at the poker table. Yeah. Um, this, this may go hand in hand with this one. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino, what would it say? It's hard for me to think of an answer because, like, I guess I don't –
0: I think there's a lot of helpful ideas to share within poker, but I think there's more helpful ideas to share outside of poker as it pertains to the world around us. Um, so I guess just, like, be positive, keep your head up type of thing.
1: So what wisdom would you share to listeners of this show who are hell-bent on realizing their poker dreams?
0: Just that it won't happen overnight you know if you're really serious about succeeding in poker then just keep working at it and if you make the right decisions in terms of who you spend your time around and you know what games you play in and what content you consume and how you study and how you live outside of poker and balance your life then you'll succeed like it's it's not at all the case that it's impossible to, to break through while it's more difficult now than it was 10 years ago, you know, that also could change in the future. Um, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's very doable. It just requires a lot of hard work, not even so much hard work, but consistent work. It doesn't have to be hard. It just has to be consistent.
1: And consistent in a way that moves the needle. Is important too. Like you, you hit the nail. You, you hit some great points as far as who are you consuming content from. Who are the people in your inner circle giving you feedback? All of these things matter. Like you need great reps in order to improve over time as a poker player. But there's definitely there's obviously cases of people coming up in the poker world in the last three or four years who are 22, 23 year old phenoms that are successful, and even on a lesser scale guys that are make a living that have come into the game in the last couple of years so like saying you know i hear don't get in don't try to become a professional poker player it's too hard um and i've been i've been guilty of this as well telling saying like no it's too hard and i do wonder if when i say this this is a way of protecting my own ego in that thinking that poker i figured it out therefore it makes me special Therefore, other people aren't going to be capable of figuring it out, and in some way, maybe I'm threatened. But I, I, I know that there's just so much evidence that you can do it. You can make it as a poker player in this day and age if you put in the work, um, and do the things you're supposed to do and plant those seeds of growth. You know? Um, yeah,
0: there could be an element of that of like protecting your own ego or whatever, but because you're acknowledging it, I think it's probably less likely that that's actually. Um, a part of it, I mean, I think, um, you know, practically speaking, some people actually shouldn't because they don't have the right set of skills or they don't really love it and they're just in it for the money. Like, I think you really have to love to play because, like, like here I am, you know, I'm how many years into my career? Like, I don't know, almost 15 years, and I'm still just like watching random games, you know, play out. <laughs> I mean, there's really <laughs> love for the the game and the process and the experience that it entails, and not that everyone has to go to such extremes, but yeah, uh, I think there's you know some some foundational things that have to be in place before somebody is, is able to do this consistently for a long period of time.
1: Hundred percent. the The perspective I think that I was that I'm coming from is I've been playing for 16 years as well. And there's a spectrum of my beliefs and mm-hmm. and who I have been as a human being, and I think that historically speaking, early on in my mid twenties or late twenties, it was an ego protection type of thing where maybe I did interact with people who could have made it in poker, but because of my ego at the time, I wasn't able to recognize the drive um, the obsession to do what it takes to succeed in poker in other people and that that could have limited other folks you know what i mean mm-hmm. that makes sense what's your current big goal as related to poker um a big poker goal i don't
0: really know that i have any to be honest i've never really been one to cling too tightly to goals i i've felt for some time now that like process oriented approaches are more beneficial in terms of, you know, just practical uh, ways to go about any given day and any decision as it, as it pertains to like, you know, things that you would like to achieve. But I guess insofar as things I would like to achieve, I don't have like specific goals. I mean, sure. Yeah. I'd like to win some more bracelets and, you know, bunch of tournament success and you know hold all the lobbies and so on but some of it's not super realistic because i just like i'm not focused on certain things but um yeah just like to, to continue to be successful i guess and continue to improve is is probably just my my biggest goal
1: and the process is just keep playing those seeds just keep making good decisions and eventually all the other stuff works itself out just by nature of the process 100 percent um do you have any projects you're working on right now that are near and dear to your heart
0: yes i I've been partnered in um a tech company in India that created an online poker site so we actually have software and we've had it for some time now and I obviously love poker and i wouldn't mind you know seeing this succeed of course logistically it's yeah logistically it's tricky because. I mean, I see what Phil has gone through with Ron at once, and I would be lying if I said I envy what it seems like he's had to deal with, you know, with back-end uh, endeavors. Nevertheless, India is a different market, and I um, I love the people that I work with over there. I trust them a lot. So, yeah, that could be cool to to see it turn into something at some point. That's to tell. <laughs>
1: What's the name of it? Can you tell me about uh, yeah. it? because I, I actually don't
0: know. Um, Poker Tempo is the name. We don't actually have an active player pool yet. Um, there's just been a lot of work done on the front end and the back end of the software for a period of time. Um, but yeah, you can people can punch it in, download it, and there's a uh, an AI that was created to just sit with people when they sit at play money. So if anybody wanted to like. Test it out or whatever, and yeah, it's cool it's it's pretty good software, and uh yeah it would, it would be neat to just like be on the other side of things, you know, like I've played so much poker and I've operated no poker, so <laughs> it would, it would just be an interesting uh, experience to sort of you know have such a good understanding of what the customers go through as players and what they want, and what they need and so on.
1: And I think that's absolutely necessary. And something that's typically missing from a lot of the existing platforms are executive in suits that make decisions without having gone through the emotions mm-hmm. and the experience of actually being a, a poker player. It's, I hate, I hate beating a dead horse, but I, I always go on these rants about, um, sites that that minimize the pros and take away more of the aspirational journey of poker and go back to like full tilt where it was, you know, the tagline is play with the pros, right? Mm-hmm. It was obviously ran by pros, obviously went horribly awry at Black Friday. However, there was something to the way they positioned themselves, the way they marketed themselves that was appealing to a major audience. And so You know, minimizing the pros or trying to reduce as many pros as you possibly can is just horrific, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, a few bad eggs shouldn't ruin it for everyone. Like, there's some bad people. Does that mean all humans are bad? No, of course not.
1: Do you have any innovative ideas in the online poker space that you'd like to see implemented? Or that maybe you, you can implement with your software?
0: I mean, I've thought a lot about this of like how to grow the game through whether it's viewership and broadcasts or different game types or, or anything like that. I think honestly, like the biggest hurdle that we currently have to, you know, sort of rebuilding the poker economy and making it look something like it was 10 years ago is just the legislation, like <laughs> those barriers that are in place that prevent people from fluidly exchanging money across various borders is almost insurmountable if things are to ever look like they were before. I don't really know that. I mean, certainly some efforts can be made. And I think like, you know, parties doing a great job running live events and building their brand and, you know, propping it up to make it look something like it once did. Um, You know, granted the entire ecosystem is different now. Um, But nevertheless, I think, yeah, just until legislation changes, it's going to be hard to kind of to overcome that.
1: So I only had a couple more questions, but now I have a couple more questions okay. <laughs> on what you just said. Um, firstly, do you think it's even possible or feasible that poker could return in the way that it once was?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's possible. It might not be probable. And were it to come back in the U.S., would it be? The same as it once was, definitely not. Because I mean, the game has changed so much in terms of how people relate to it and their perspective on it and strategy and whatnot. But it's possible that it would look something like it, once, like it once did. But even then, like it used to be, that you know, it was Italy, it was China, it was the UK, the US, Mexico, everyone's sitting together. And I don't know that that is. I mean, if if we were to just like. You know, completely broke caution to the wind, and the government was like, "Yeah, just play with whoever." And all all governments just sort of had an enlightenment moment, and uh, you know, we just sort of became collectively enlightened. Yeah, it's very possible that it would look quite a bit like what it once did.
1: I like that. Second second question: What's the future of online poker look like, uh, especially with the advancements in AI in software? Do you think online poker is a sustainable thing?
0: I think it can be if it's policed, and I think uh, you know part of the reason that regulating sites is somewhat important is uh you know if these unscrupulous behaviors come with the possible punishment of actual crime, it would be somewhat of a deterrent. Now, I'm sure some people would still choose to do it. Nevertheless it would it would be helpful in in combating and mitigating uh, that behavior.
1: Yeah, like dude dude using uh, you know, assist some sort of assistance software and gets to go to prison for uh for stealing or whatever the punishment may be. Or right? can
0: you just get something on your record, like, oh, you're a felon, like you cheated in a game. I mean, yeah. I don't know what the equivalent is in like a casino setting. I guess they just eighty six you and maybe they press charges I I don't really know I'm not familiar
1: I have no idea as far <laughs> uh, it would probably be a bad thing if we knew exactly what happened if you got caught cheating in a casino Yeah All right one more question and then we'll we'll call it We can get back to quarantining ourselves <laughs> What's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with Um when people <laughs> when people <laughs> commonly talk on streams about like
0: hands being underrepresented. It's just not used well. You generally, like, sometimes it is. Sometimes, like, you actually have an underrept hand. But sometimes it's just, like, no, like, that hand is just, like, in the person's range. And it's not over-underrepresented. It's just in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that I, I hear periodically where I'm just like, oh, that that just doesn't really make that much sense right now. <laughs>
1: yeah it's represented perfectly
0: yeah usually and i I can understand where they're coming from it's as it pertains to like the upper portion of someone's range but then you should just say like oh there's higher in their range i don't know that's just what comes to mind
1: yeah it's like like you flat flat a three bet with aces and then they go bet bet and you're like, oh, I've underrepresented my hand, right? Because I guess you didn't 4-bet, even though some percentage of the time you are flatting with 3-bets in position, so it's a perfectly normal part of your I think that's
0: even a more accurate use of the term. But yeah, I don't have a specific example, unfortunately. It's just something (laughs) that I've, I've seen
1: or heard. I hear the term unblock, and that term breaks my brain, like... I have a hand that unblocks the bluffs, which <laughs> for some reason, it's just hard for me to to wrap my mind around it because it's like, anyway, it's, it's one of the things that, that I've seen or heard people use. Like, oh, what about the times that you unblock something? And I mean, I'm like, so I have something that's not relevant <laughs> to anything. <laughs> I just have two rags, basically. Okay.
0: I think a lot of time unblocking is most helpful when. We are bluffing, and we want them to have like the obvious draw. A lot of times, why like giving up with flush draws in certain cases is good because you've mitigated the chance of them having the flush draw to fold out, type of thing.
1: Right, right. And I just think about it as like we're not blocking, <laughs> like you yeah. know, we're not blocking yeah. the hands that we want them to have. But then when you throw unblocking into it, my mind just just doesn't compute for some reason. All right, man. Uh, final final question. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web?
0: On Twitter, at LuckyChewy. I don't post a ton of stuff because I just usually don't feel compelled to, but yeah, I have a, a blog that I update also fairly infrequently. Um, I create content at LearnWPT. make videos and, and teach seminars with them and can't say enough good things about them and their the whole team they have. It's just a great group of people, and it's really fun to to teach. It just kind of like brings everything back to basics for me, and yeah, just articulating ideas that I have in my mind. Um, it really really forces you to to be honest with yourself about your own play and your own thoughts when you're sharing it with others.
1: How often are you updating the the curriculum, the things that you teach in Learn WPT? So I'm not
0: solely responsible for that, but I would say it gets updated two to th- three times a year.
1: That's free, that's good. That's a high. That's a high frequency. Um, yeah, and it's not like it gets world totally
0: world. revamped, but like okay, you know, we can change around these slides, add these, take these away, type of thing.
1: Yeah, because by the nature of poker, it's just evolutionary it changes it is over percent. time i ideas need to be updated well thank you my man for for your time for your energy i'm very grateful i appreciate it and uh let's do this again sometime in the near future i'm grateful yeah. for you having me thank you very much thank you so much for listening to this episode of chasing poker greatness if you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.